From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. We're all trying to find the right balance between saving time and providing the best care for our patients. That's why we're excited to tell you about Visual DX. Whether you're trying to solve a challenging case, engage patients by showing them medical imagery that looks like them, or look up the latest treatment options, Visual DX is here to help. Your peers have said recently that you can just see the sense of satisfaction and understanding from the patient while using Visual DX. Try Visual DX for free for seven days, then get 50% off a yearly subscription. Visit visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get the AAD discount. That's visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get started today. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Dr. Jackie Dosal, and I'm a practicing dermatologist at Skin Associates of South Florida and Coral Gables. Today is our monthly edition of September's issue of our journal, the American Academy of Dermatology podcast. The article we're going to be reviewing today is entitled Efficacy and Safety of Switching from Dupilumab to Upadacitinib versus continuous upadacitinib in moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. This is the results of an open label extension of a phase three randomized controlled trial, which was the heads up trial. And I'm here today with the study's lead author, Dr. Andrew Blaubelt. He is the investigator at Oregon Medical Research Center, which is a small business dedicated to performing high quality clinical research studies in dermatology. He is an expert in all things dermatology. (laughs) Very well trained. We're so excited to have you. Welcome, doctor. Thank you for having me, Jackie. I'm happy to be here. So I'm excited to talk about this study. This is very useful information. It's timely and relevant, but I first want to ask you sort of how you guys designed this trial. It seems like this was a pre-planned second part of the heads up trial. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, you know, we've had dupilumab out on the market for many years now. It was really a trailblazer drug for the treatment of uh, moderate to severe AD. And when the JAK inhibitors started to be studied, including this drug, upadacitinib, the obvious thing was to try to compare, right, a JAK inhibitor with dupilumab. And we thought it would be a great thing to do for the derm community. You know, how does the, the new guy in the block, if you will, compare to the old standard? And so at the time that we designed it, one of the key points of this study is that we used a dose of upadacitinib that is the high dose now, it's 30 milligrams. There's another dose, of course, 15 milligrams. But at the time we designed it, we didn't know the FDA would be putting in the label to start everybody on 15. So one of the caveats of this original study, it was 30 milligrams of upadacitinib versus dupilumab. And actually, after then the drug got approved on the market, and then we know that we knew that dosing and the recommended dosing by the FDA, there's actually a current study going on another one, upadacitinib at 15 milligrams versus dupilumab. So we're in the middle of that study right now, and that'll be coming out. But so some would say this study is a little bit unfair if you are a little bit biased because we use the higher dose upadacitinib versus dupi, but we're actually almost repeating the entire thing again at the lower dose of upadacitinib. That's great. And can you summarize the results of the heads up trial, which are not, I mean, they're summarized in this article, but just to give us a frame of reference for what this label extension shows us. Yeah. So this study was a one year study. 
called Heads Up. The first six months of the study, which is where the primary endpoint was, was published in the JAMA Dermatology a few years ago, the first 24 weeks. And in that study, it was very clear that upadacitinib, 30 milligrams, outperformed dupilumab over the course of six months in pretty much everything we measured. So it's faster. It had a higher level of success in terms of higher levels of clearance, not only in terms of the skin clearance of the eczema, but also in terms of itch reduction. It was a very clear result. And then the second part of the study is what this paper is. And this paper just came out in JAMA Derm. And in the second part, everyone that had been on upadacitinib for six months stayed on the drug over the course of the entire year. But those who were on dupilumab were then switched over to upadacitinib. So six months of dupilumab and then six months of upadacitinib for the second part of the study. So we're reporting that second part of, so we have data on people who've been on UPA for a year, and then we have other data on people who are on DUPI and then switched over to UPA the second six months. And I should just also point out real quickly, this was a double blind, double dummy study which is interesting because people say, well, how can it be double blind? Because it's a pill versus a shot, right? But in this study, everybody at the beginning was taking a pill every day and everybody was getting shots every two weeks. And so you had some people on Yupa and doing fake shots. Oh, wow. And then other people doing real dupey shots and taking fake Yupa pills every day. So we really didn't know and the patients didn't know what they were on during that first six months. So double dummy is, is the way we describe it. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a great design. And just a, a couple of points of clarification. So this second part we're talking about, this extension is in the JAD, not JAMA, correct? Correct. Yeah. The new papers is in the JAD, yep. And then this part, this article is reporting on the first 16 weeks of that second six months? Correct. Okay. And that's because it was a main sort of primary endpoint designated, a week 40 endpoint. So it is only four months of new data. To your point, we do think it's really relevant to private practice because there are a lot of folks, right, on dupilumab who may not be doing terrific out there and dermatologists may be considering switching to, to UPA in those patients. So this is, we think is really relevant because they, they can look at this data then and just say, look, you know, this is what I would expect if I switch you over. Okay. That's a perfect lead into what you guys found. Right. Well, I think the main point that I want to say with the data is the six month data for dupilumab actually looks pretty good. It actually, it, we know that dupilumab is a good drug. We did see upadacitinib outperform dupilumab, especially at the beginning and early months. But by six months, they're pretty similar. Upadacitinib is still a little bit better. But then what happens, right? Like when you switch, we actually see a higher level of clearance. And so we've measured EZ90, which means the percentage of people who are 90% improved or higher which is essentially clear. It's a really, really high bar for eczema. So we're measuring actually the high bar of success with EZ90. And then very similarly, when we look at itch, we're looking at itch 01. And this is out of a score of 10, with 10 being the worst itch ever. 
And we found that people, when they record zero on that scale or a one, it's essentially no itch. And that's a really, really high bar for eczema too. So what we found with dupilumab, let's go first with the easy 90. At six months, it's around two thirds of the patients, which is again, a very, very respectable number. It's in the seventies though for Yupa. But then when they switch, they go up in the eighties. So they go from two thirds of patients achieving that 90% clearance all the way up in the like the 85% range. So we pick up another 20% or so of patients that go on to this very high level of clearance of easy 90. And then when we look at the itch, it's the other main piece of the data, it's only about a third of patients on dupilumab. Only about a third will get to that itch of zero one after six months. And when we switch over, we see it jump up into the 50s, 60% or so range of patients going to zero itch or trace itch. So we almost double really the number of patients who drop their itch scores out through the bottom. So the main points here is yes, dupilumab is good, but if you switch, you just, you pick up a whole other group of people getting really clear and really knocking out their itch. That's great. And this is such useful data. How about adverse events in both of the groups? Yeah, it, it, that's a hot topic. I'm glad you mentioned it because as you know, JAK inhibitors have boxed warnings and uh, all JAK inhibitors do, including dupatacitinib and dupilumab doesn't, right? It's a fairly safe drug. Just deal with conjunctivitis is kind of the main issue with dupilumab. In this study, we really didn't find anything jumping out that was unusual or different. The, the safety patterns looked good, but again, it was only over 40 weeks, but there wasn't lots of things happening in the JAK group and nothing happening in the Dukaymat group. So my experience actually is that JAK inhibitors are much safer than the label sort of makes them out to be. I've been using them now for gosh, five, over five years and using them in atopic dermatitis, in vitiligo, in HS, in alopecia areata. And for the most part, you have to monitor blood tests. You have to keep an eye on some things. But for me, in my hands, and my experience with that five years of use in a variety of diseases, the safety of JAX has been excellent, including upadacitinib in the study. But because of the label, right? Because of that label, we do have to talk to patients about it, think about it. But I really, really don't think it, dermatologists should be not using this class of drugs because of the label. The label has a whole history behind it. So it's, I guess what I'm saying is in reality, in using these drugs, they're not as scary as they, they seem to be on the surface. I'm so happy you said that. And I, I've heard so many other experts say the same thing. So the people who are using it hands-on seem to be saying the same thing. So I, I want to put that on the side because we're going to come back to that for a second. Yeah. And just to ask an obvious question, but the group that started dupilumab and then moved over to the JAK, you didn't notice any increase. I and mean, we wouldn't expect it because dupi is so safe, but same expected side effects, correct? In the crossover group? Right. There wasn't any, and we also didn't do a washout. So that, that's an important question that comes right. from the dermatologist's office. You know, do I have to wait mm -hmm. before starting a JAK inhibitor? 
do I have to wash out, you know, the dupey? And really you don't. And we didn't in this study. So the dupey patients had a shot at week 22. And then at week 24, when they would have been due for another shot, they started upadacitinib. So really there was no issues in that crossover. Okay. That's great. And that brings me, you know, that was a limitation that your team brought up, which I wanted to bring up is maybe there could have been some synergistic effect in that, that middle portion where they just started the JAK inhibitor. So could there have been some extra benefits with that little crossover period potentially helping them? Yeah, it's actually a really good question. And we maybe see some hint of that when we look at the data, because it does look, the week four data after switching looks a little better than the week 16 data after switching. It actually is an interesting point that um, we really see, you know, great results just four weeks after starting upadacitinib. But maybe it is so great because you got a little bit of dupilumab still on board and now you're adding, it doesn't go down a lot, but it goes down a little bit over time. And maybe that's because the dupilumab is really getting washed out. Anecdotally, did that group that switched over, did they get better faster than the original UPI group in the heads up or too hard to compare? I'm looking at it right now and it's a really good question. And I would say they're both fast. Upadacitinib works really fast. In my experience with this drug, I mean, patients will report a drop in their itch kind of going through the floor, if you will, in the first two days. I actually think this drug is the best anti-itch drug we have in dermatology. And it's really not talked about in that way so much. So it is a really fast antipyritic. That's fantastic. Any other limitations that we need to discuss from the study? Yeah, it's a good point. I'm going to emphasize it again. And I think it's the the main limitation here is that it's 30 milligrams, right, of upadacitinib, because the recommended dose to start with upadacitinib is 15 milligrams. But at the time, again, at the time we designed it, we didn't know that the starting dose would be 15. So 15 and 30 were both being studied in the phase three program. And it was sort of after that data came out, the FDA said, look, you, you should start with 15 first. So some would say it's not a fair fight, but as I mentioned, we're repeating this study basically with 15 milligrams. So that should be really interesting too. And let me ask you outside of the scope of this paper, do you start on 15 and when would you go to 30? It's a really good question. I love the question because um, when the label first came out, and they said, you know, you have to start 15 and you're going to 30. I, I was like, this is not what dermatologists do. Dermatologists like to hit hard, yeah. you know, with 40, 60 milligrams of prednisone and then they back off, right? Or what are some other examples? I don't know, just, uh, you know, cyclosporin. I was going to say cyclosporin, yeah. you just go for it. Yeah. And then you taper after you control disease. So I was a little disappointed, actually, that the FDA said you should start with 15 because the patients in my office, I would want to get them under control with 30 really rapidly and then step down. Now, with that said, the 15 works really well, too. We The 15 dose does not work half as good as 30. It actually is better than half as good. So 30 is kind of a 
it, it gives you some incremental improvement over 15, but it's not twice as good as what I'm saying. So 15 is very solid. You get great efficacy. It also is fast. But to answer your question, I haven't answered yet. <laughs> I would start everybody on 15, just as, as per label. But I don't wait long, so I'm not recommending waiting long. So I would say four weeks because the drug works so fast. See the patient back in a month. And if they're not really under control then, and they're still significantly impaired or so forth, I would just go to 30 at that point, right? Just after four weeks. Great. So that really helps because I found it nebulous and confusing. So this is... <laughs> so to close out at least the article portion of this talk, you know, take home points that I'm hearing are dupilumab is still a great drug, still very safe, but that upadacitinib gets you that extra next level up of improvement. So more patients being clear and really clear and almost, you know, a fair percentage, I think 40 to 50% having no itch is pretty incredible. So do you agree? I do. It's a good summary. Yes. Okay. All right. So now I want to take this opportunity to tap your brain because you've got all this expertise in these jack and hibbers. So let's sort of do another kind of review or your thoughts on the systemic therapies that are out there for atopic derm. Sure. So first I want to say that for me, when I approach patients, and this is the same actually for psoriasis patients and for atopic dermatitis patients. So exactly the same approach. I walk in the room and if I'm meeting patients for the first time, I'm starting to think, is this going to be a patient that I'm going to treat with topicals or is this a patient that I'm going to treat systemically? So I am not a dermatologist that puts everyone on topicals first and, and forces patients to go through that and step before I do systemics. So if I see widespread psoriasis, severe psoriasis, I'm not going to put that patient through clobetazole, right? That is a systemic patient. It's same thing with AD. If it's widespread, if it's severe, I'm not going to do triamcinolone ointment or recommend that. I'm just going to talk about the systemic therapies. So that's the first thing. Just approach the patient. In your mind, you got to decide that, right? Am I going to go topical? Is it a candidate for topical therapy or a candidate for stomach therapy? And the things I use to help me in both diseases are the BSA, right? The body surface area involved. Is it limited? Is it extensive? And then where they have it, is it bad? Is it a really crusted, horrible looking AD lesions where they have it? Maybe there's not too many, but where they have it, it's horrible. I do ask about quality of life, how the impact of the disease, if they are miserable, if they are not sleeping, especially for AD, you got to ask about itch, right? So sometimes you don't see really a lot. And we, we call that itch dominant AD. And they're just itching like crazy and they're miserable and they can't sleep and work. So I think those are the factors that I use to try to determine topical or systemic. And then if it's an AD patient, right, who is a candidate for systemic therapy, we have four options right now, in my view. I really, really don't think dermatologists should be using prednisone or catalog shots anymore for atopic dermatitis. There's quite a bit of data showing harm can happen. And I know doctors have been doing that for 50 years, but we don't need to do that. It's really, um, we do see calcium 
leaching from bones within a few days. We, you know, there's a lot of patients that really just don't want to do high dose prednisone. So anyway, for me, that's not even an option these days. My, the options are dupilumab, tralokinumab, which is another biologic, and then two oral jack inhibitors, upadacitinib and abrocitinib. And so two biologics, two jacks. And when I was doing trials, I, I just want to give this anecdote. When I was doing trials and we would have biologic study and a JAK study open at the same time, I was having these conversations with patients, you know, trying to describe the pros and cons of each type of drug. So one of the obvious ones is pills versus shots, right? The other one is the safety. That's another kind of obvious thing. The shots are safer, I think, than the pills. But then there's efficacy and speed, as we talked about in this paper. And I do think, in general, the pills are better efficacy, better antipyritics than the shots. So how do you like balance these things, right? Pill versus shot, safety, efficacy. I have the conversation with the patients, and I try to make a fair pros and cons of each. And in my experience, it's pretty interesting, I think, if you do it in a fair way, I think about half of the patients will choose the pill, the jacks, and about half will choose biologics. And the, the main factors for driving this is not pill versus shot. For me, it's been the ones that want the pill just want to get better and they quote unquote want the best drug and they want to get better fast and they're not worrying about the safety of jacks. They just want the best medicine. And then on the other hand, the, for the, the ones choosing biologics, yeah, they're concerned about when they hear about the box warnings, they're more shy. So yeah, I'll, I'll take the shot. So to me, it, it's efficacy dominates for people choosing a jack and safety dominates for people choosing a biologic. You sort of answered my question, which was, is there ever a time where you're going to pick a jack over dupilumab? Because I feel like dupilumab is so good. I personally haven't found an opportunity to go straight to a jack because, you know, that person's going to walk through my door at some point, through all of our doors, just miserable, terrible. And I could see that, but I, I have always loved dupilumab because it works so well and it's so safe. I haven't quite felt the need to move on yet, but oh, I don't wow. have as many patients as you. Okay. So I'm talking to, uh, talking to someone that I need to Convinced. Well, I'm trying to introduce you to this wonderful world of jacks. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a wonderful world. They work. I'm curious and open and willing. <laughs> so, what I'm suggesting to folks like you, because you're not alone, is get samples, right? Yeah, and get experience of of that first month, and and you're gonna you're gonna be wowed. You're gonna be wowed. You're gonna go, oh wow, this is incredible. <laughs> so you know, sometimes that's how people start with jacks is they start sampling it for a month, and until you do it, it's you know a little bit of a barrier, right? A little bit of hump to get over until you actually start using a new drug. But that's kind of what I'm telling folks. It is a at least offer it your, to your patients. Say, look, that's what I also would suggest is you kind of open up the discussion instead of deciding for them. Right. That's a good point. And then can you sort of give us your blurb that you tell patients about the jack safety? Sure. Yeah. It's not really a quick conversation because it's going to be at least five minutes. I say, look, these drugs have what we call boxed warnings, which means highlighted warnings in the label. And I tell it to them because I don't want them to read about it later. Mm -hmm. Right. So, oh, man, you, you didn't tell me about yeah. all these things. And I say, look, these warnings come from an, another drug 
called Zelgans, and it was other studies in rheumatoid arthritis patients. And that's the origin. That is the origin of the five boxed warnings for JAK inhibitors. And the FDA has carried it over from Zelgans, the RA studies, over into all the other labels. So that's what's been done. So they need to know that history. And then I follow on and say, look, of the five boxed warnings, we're really only seeing one play out in the AD studies, and that is serious infection. And it's not a high signal, but it is a signal that we have to worry about. So I do tell patients that I'm going to be watching you close for infections. Now, the other four, though, death, heart attack, blood clots, and cancers, really serious kind of biggie things, we're actually not seeing signals, if you will, for those four things in the eczema trials uh, with JAK inhibitors. So I tell patients, yes, here are the warnings, but really what I want to emphasize is that I'm going to be watching close for infections, but you do need to be aware of these other four things um, and where they came from and why they're in the label of your drug. Will you delay start for patients to get Zoster vaccines? I don't. I think it's an increased risk of Zoster with JAK inhibitors, but it's not a, a big risk. It's a small risk. It's a couple percent. And I think it, the numbers are not big enough to delay. So um, I do tell patients about Zoster, yes, as part of my infection thing. Reactivation of HSV is another thing that we see. But yeah, I talk about Zoster because it's easily treated too, but I won't delay. I'm not like so worried about it that you know, I got to have everybody vaccinated before they start. I, I'm not, I don't practice that way. Okay. And then just a, if you could, just a brief word on your monitoring. Sure. Rarely things can happen in the, in the blood tests. Again, five years of experience with monitoring JAK inhibitors very closely with blood tests. I really have not seen a lot, but there are a few things that you can see. You can see drops in blood counts, red cells, white cells, platelets, pretty uncommon usually happens in the first year. Usually it's not dramatic. You can see elevations in LFTs, pretty uncommon. It's usually not dramatic. And you can see lipid elevations, which actually that is the most common lab issue you see with JAK inhibitors. So I recommend a CBC with diff, a chem 20, and a lipid profile. And then of course, a quantifiron gold at the beginning. But then over time, I'm on sure about every three months in that first year, but then about every six months thereafter. So my experience is that if there's going to be something happening with the labs, it's usually in that first year. So I, I, I recommend seeing patients at one month to see if they need a higher dose. And then about once a quarter, just to check in with them. Are you checking CPKs too? I know they were elevated in, in this study. Right. CPK is part of the Chem 20 usually. So we were getting it. CPKs that can go up. I didn't mention it with JAX because it's not ever really clinically relevant. So we don't ever see rhabdo or, and the FDA actually doesn't even recommend, doesn't even mention CPK in the label, even though we see it because it doesn't really seem to have any clinical consequences. Perfect. This was fantastic. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Don't be shy about JAK inhibitors. They are up and in and all around dermatology now. They're up in our grill is what I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> we got atopic dermatitis. We got alopecia areata. 
we got vitiligo and they could be approved for HS, they could be approved for lichen planus, it'd be a shame if dermatologists just say, no, I'm not going to use that class of drugs when they're so helpful for so many diseases. So hopefully those who are shy can kind of get over that hump and, and experience something great. And off, it's really a great offering as well to your patients. That's awesome. Very inspiring too. Thank you for that. So that will conclude. This was our September JAD podcast again. Um, Dr. Jackie Dosal, I want to thank you for tuning in and come check us out next month. We're all trying to find the right balance between saving time and providing the best care for our patients. That's why we're excited to tell you about Visual DX. Whether you're trying to solve a challenging case, engage patients by showing them medical imagery that looks like them, or look up the latest treatment options, Visual DX is here to help. Your peers have said recently that you can just see the sense of satisfaction and understanding from the patient while using Visual DX. Try Visual DX for free for seven days, then get 50% off a yearly subscription. Visit visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get the AAD discount. That's visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get started today. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.